Join me, please, in our reading of God's Word tonight. We come to the Gospel according to Luke, the 22nd chapter, and verses 54 through 62. Before we read God's Word, let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this warm, dry place to which we can come on this cold, wet, rainy evening to worship you, to have our hearts stirred by the lovely music of the string ensemble, to worship you and uh, blend our voices together in praise and adoration to you, and then read and hear your word preached. Pray that you would add your richest blessing to the reading of your word and open our ears and most especially our hearts so that we might be those who not only hear your word, but those who are moved by it and those who are quick to put it into practice. We pray in Christ's name, amen. This is where Luke writes, then they seized him, meaning Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. The late Rich Mullins is one of my very favorite singer-songwriters. And he wrote several songs over the years that really put their finger on the pulse of this strange Christian pilgrimage that we all find ourselves on. And one of those songs is entitled, We Are Not As Strong as we think we are. And really, I don't need to repeat the verses because the title says it all. We all tend to underestimate how much we need Jesus in our moment of trial. If we knew our need, I think we would pray a lot more than we actually do. If churches knew how desperately Satan would love to come in and wreak havoc of their congregational life, they would probably prioritize prayer meetings more than they do. If I knew how close I have come to ruining my ministry, to ruining my life, I'd be far more diligent studying Scripture than I actually am. Truly, we are not as strong as we think we are. And Peter is maybe Scripture's most obvious example of that, certainly not the only example the list is long, but Peter is the one we think of most, the one who overestimates his own human ability to be strong for the Lord in his moment of trial. 
Why do I say Peter overestimates his ability? Well, for one thing, Peter is supremely self-confident when he boasts to the Lord, Lord, even if all the others leave you, I never will. I will go to prison. I will even go to death for you. Verse 33 of this same chapter. And how easy it is to be confident when we're surrounded by fellow believers at church. But how quickly our confidence can dry up when we're in the pressure cooker of the world, when we're outside of these safe doors, when we want to fit in, when we desperately want to be included. That's the real test, isn't it? How stridently will I stand up for Jesus when I'm the only one doing it? When I'm branded a bigot for affirming traditional marriage, for example, when I'm considered closed-minded for affirming Jesus in his own words, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father, when I affirm the gender binary, even though it puts me in the minority. It's in these moments that we understand truly, Lord, I need thee every hour. I need you just as much in my discipleship as I ever did in my salvation. I think for men especially, there is so much pressure for us to just be self-sufficient, to say we don't need anything. We've got this. We're strong. We are dependent on ourselves and no one else. We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. And so sometimes it takes hard providences to knock us down so that we have no choice but to look up. It's the only way to look. And Peter is what you might call a man's man. He is bold and he is assertive. He's even aggressive at times. He is rugged and he is ready for action. At least he thinks he is. But boy, does he get knocked down in this passage and it's probably the best thing that ever happens to him because the Lord makes of him by restoring him after his fall into something beautiful, into something he never would have been otherwise. Another way Peter shows overconfidence in these passages is in his prayerlessness, in his failure to pray as he ought. They were at Gethsemane earlier that night, you remember, at the Mount of Olives. And while Jesus sweated drops of blood, agonizing in prayer, Peter and company are doing what off to the side? Or they're snoozing. And Luke tells us they are sleeping for sorrow. It's almost as if they uh, want to escape this difficult situation they're in by, by sleeping it off. But Jesus warns them, watch and pray, because if you don't, you're going to fall into temptation. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so he says, why are you men sleeping? Get up. The hour of your trial has come. He says, I know your spirit is willing, but your flesh is so unbelievably weak. Can't you stay awake with me for a single hour? So if the disciples could see how close they are to being Satan's playthings, to being toys of the prince of darkness, they would never sleep again as long as they lived. But still, Peter finds it more important to catch a little catnap than to ask for God to help him in his moment of trial. It's obvious which one Jesus thinks is more important. Yes, they're sleepy, they're sorrowful, but he says, get up and pray. Why are you sleeping? 
Sleep is secondary that moment. They should have been praying. And I know that I am very guilty of trading sleep for prayer. So why doesn't Peter pray? Well, isn't the answer obvious? He doesn't think he needs to. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Why don't we pray? Why don't I pray more? Well, I quite simply do not see my need for it as I should. We think we're standing. We see no need to take heed because we don't know that we're teetering on the brink of a precipice of ruin and misery. We think we're just doing fine without divine help. We have what we need. But we see here the fall of a disciple in verses 54 through 60, and then we see the rise of an apostle in verses 61 and 62. So first of all, the fall of a disciple. When Jesus' captors show up to capture him, when the world puts Peter to the test, no surprise at all that he is not ready for the test. He fails it miserably. In his volatile way, he goes postal in this moment, and he hacks some guy's ear off, verse 50. And then just as erratically, he flees the scene with the other disciples. The shepherd is struck, and all the sheep scatter. And then you sense this battle going on inside of Peter where he vacillates back and forth. You see it in his body language. He follows Jesus, verse 54, which you have to give him credit for, don't you? That is what disciples do. That is the definition of a disciple, a follower of his master. So give Peter some credit. He's doing more than most of the disciples in this moment. But he's only doing it from a distance. He's following him tentatively, but at least he's following him. He's only one of two disciples to do so. We're told that John is the other one. And he gets Peter in the gate, John tells us, so that he's able to sort of follow Jesus into the courtyard, although he's keeping his distance. But the downside, as I just stated a minute ago, is that he follows Jesus, yes, but he follows him from a distance, verse 54. So you see two competing impulses at work in Peter here, this sort of internal tug of war going on. You see loyalty on the one hand, because yes, he is following Jesus, but then you see the desire for self-preservation on the other hand, because he doesn't want to get too close for fear of risking his own neck. But it is a dangerous business to follow Jesus at a distance. To want to stay sort of tangentially connected to Jesus because of the benefits that Jesus gives us, but not so close that it threatens your autonomy or your comfort or your safety or your popularity. We forget, don't we, that it is not our job to supply any of those things for ourselves. Our job is simply to follow him, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross daily and to follow him. And in return, he gives us all the comfort and all the blessing that we could ever hope for. But we forget that, don't we? And we forget the importance of maintaining our communication with the Lord Jesus. Communication is a two-way street, isn't it? You nurture any relationship by doing two things, by listening and by talking. Stop talking or listening to your spouse and your relationship is going to go cold. Well, it's the same with the Lord Jesus. And in his friendship with Jesus, 
there has been some creeping distance that has come in. Peter has done a lot of talking, a lot of blustery, braggadocious talking. Listening, not so much. So Peter has been a distant follower of Jesus for quite a while. You can say when Jesus tells Peter things, that he hears them, but he's not really listening to what Jesus has to say. He's pretty sure he's got his own heart well apprised of the situation. So this passage, this is just sort of a continuation of Peter's sort of arm-length attitude toward Jesus. In previous passages, he has made his bed, and in this passage, he's lying in that bed. So he counts on Jesus needing him. He sort of strokes his ego about how much Jesus needs him, but he completely forgets how much he needs Jesus. So in the cool of this evening, there was a little bit of a chill in the air, just like there is tonight. Peter goes into the courtyard and he sits down among them, among these people who are not committed in any way to Jesus. And he begins to keep bad company. He tries to assimilate with people with whom he has no real heart commitments in common, and that never, ever really works. And this servant girl, in verse 56, we're told, sees the light from the fire pit sort of flickering on the side of Peter's face, dancing on the side of his face, and it prompts her memory. She recognizes him, and so she sort of gazes at him at a distance for a while, looks very closely, and then she says, this man was with him. And Peter must have tensed up and gotten a little spooked because he came here to blend in. He came here for reconnaissance. He came here to keep a distance. He did not come here to be recognized. And so he responds pretty quickly. Verse 57, I don't know him. Remember just hours ago, he had said so self-confidently with so much swagger, I will go to prison with you. Verse 33, I will go to death with you. And now he denies even being with him at all. Don't know him. You've got me confused with someone else. So the moment passes and Peter must have thought, boy, that was close. But this doesn't bode well, does it? Because this was only a servant girl, so to speak. She didn't pose any real threat to Peter at all. But look how quickly he capitulated. Until a little bit later, verse 58, someone else, this time a man whose testimony may carry a little bit more weight than a servant girl's, says, hey, you also, you were one of them. And now at this point, Peter begins to make a bad habit of equivocating. His slip, if you will, becomes a slide. See, the first time we sin, it bothers us, doesn't it? Our Our consciences are sensitive. Our consciences are tender and easily pricked. We don't want to do it, but we cave in in a moment of weakness, and we don't feel good about it afterwards. But the second time, I know you've all had this experience, it's a bit easier, isn't it? It doesn't bother us quite as much. At that point, we have not just slipped, we have begun to slide If sin starts to bother us less, we are in hot water indeed. A slippery slope that apart from the grace of God can slide us all the way to hell. But Peter insists even more decisively, verse 58, man, I am not. 
You will remember that one of Jesus' famous sayings is variations of the phrase, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the door for the sheep. Ego ami. Well, here Peter says, in stark contrast to that, I am not. It almost sounds like a negation of what Jesus is affirming about himself so many times. But then about an hour later, and it's interesting, the way that Luke says this makes it sound as if all this happens in about 30 seconds. But you can envision what's going on here. People are chatting with each other around the fire, and they're talking to one another, and, and they're, they're sharing, hey, don't you recognize this guy? Am I right? Isn't he the one that was with that group of disciples? So another guy pipes up in verse 59, and he is more self-assured than a lot of them. And so he insists, he has zero doubt at all. He says, in truth, this man was with them. How does he know? Well, he's a Galilean. Jesus and the others are Galileans, so therefore he must have been one of them. How does he know he's a Galilean? Is it his accent? It is his dialect? Is it the way he says shibboleth? Something tips him off. You can take the Galilean out of the countryside, but apparently you can't take the countryside out of the Galilean. And now Peter is really starting to get anxious because a servant girl, you can sort of dismiss her and not pay too much attention to her, but now two men have identified him. And on the testimony of two or three witnesses, of course, every truth is established. And so he fears that he might become guilty by association. So he starts to panic and he denies even more stridently, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 60. So three different denials in three different ways. He is once, twice, three times a deceiver. Peter could never come back and say later and rationalize and say, oh, it's just a big misunderstanding. No, he has stepped over the line big time. And it's at that point, verse 60, that he's interrupted. And he is so out of his mind with panic that it doesn't register until he looks at Jesus across the courtyard. Verse 61. Who in the perfect timing of this providential moment just happens to be in Peter's sight at the time. And the Lord turns and he looks right at Peter and it clicks. And Peter remembers the word of the Lord. How desperately we need to remember the word of the Lord before we deny him, before we sin against him. Because our fall could be prevented by remembering the word before it happens. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not what? Sin against thee. But as important as it is to remember the word of the Lord before we sin, it may be still more important to remember the word of the Lord after we have fallen into sin. I love these words in Scripture in 1 John. My little children, I write these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, an advocate, one who pleads the Father's behalf 
for us. Please to the Father for us. Peter remembers Jesus telling him these words, and he refused to accept the Lord's truth about himself. But now they are coming home in a torrential way to his heart, and he needs it now more than he ever has in his life. Jesus, the prophet to end all prophets, predicts exactly what Peter would do. Peter didn't listen at the time because he thought he knew himself better than Jesus knew him. But just as Jesus has said, he has denied three times that he knew his Lord even before the rooster crows, and he knows it, and it absolutely crushes Peter in this moment. But then we see the rise of an apostle. We don't just see the falling of a disciple. We see the rise of an apostle here, verses 61 and 62. Peter goes out, we're told, and he weeps bitterly, verse 62, which might sound like a strange thing to say following his rise. But though weeping endures for the night, joy comes in the morning. This eye contact that Peter has had with his Lord devastates him in that moment because he sees in the Savior's eyes not a smug I told you so look and not a self-pitying how could you do this to me look and not a vindictive I'm going to get you later for this look. But what does he see in the Savior's eyes? Well, we're not really told explicitly, but if we know anything about the Savior whose portrait Luke has been painting for 22 chapters, we know that it must have been a look of love and compassion and understanding and forgiveness. And instantly, it reminds Peter of the Lord's warning. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, verse 31. But just as instantly, it also reminds him of the Lord's wonderful promise, which comes home to his heart in a beautiful way here. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Verse 32. You see, if Jesus was a true prophet in his warning to Peter, he will be just as true a prophet in his promise to restore Peter. And so Peter's faith in this terrible moment does not fail. For one reason, the Son of God prayed that it would not fail and prophesied that Peter would turn back, that he would repent. And when he does, he is to strengthen his brothers. What keeps me from utter ruin is not the perseverance of the saints, because that is what I do, but rather it is the preservation of our Lord, the one who enables us to persevere. So our loving high priest lives even now to make intercession for us. The very reason Peter looks at Jesus in this moment is that his faith gloriously does not fail. My faith looks up to thee, thou Lamb of Calvary. You see, faith is not introspection. Faith is not trying to conjure up the right thoughts and images and feelings in our hearts. Faith is us looking away from ourselves to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will come strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So in this moment, Peter looks at Jesus. His faith is weak. His faith is faltering. 
He is disillusioned. He is crushed. And yet he still has a modicum, a mustard seed of faith. And with that faith, he turns to the Savior. And unless he did, he would not have seen the Savior turning to look at him and making that eye contact with him. So he sees the forgiving gaze of the one that he has just denied, and he is crushed by it. And this strong man's man melts into tears in this moment. But those tears are good, you see. This is a kind of worldly sorrow that crushes our spirits, Paul tells us about in Corinthians. It is despair. It is regret. It is remorse. It is internalized pain that eats us up from the inside out and destroys us. But there's another kind of sorrow that Peter Paul tells us about that is actually good for us. He calls it godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance and leaves no regret in its wake. And Paul talks about all the great effects that godly sorrow has to the Corinthians. Sometimes the lungs of premature babies are underdeveloped and they can't get rid of carbon dioxide and it builds up and they can't take in oxygen the way that they should. So a special liquid called surfactant is put into their lungs and helps the alveoli completely expand so that the gas exchange can take place so that the little baby's lungs can strengthen and they can breathe on their own. Now, all that sounds dangerous, doesn't it? Putting liquid into the lungs sounds like the very definition of drowning. But this special liquid, you see, makes life possible for these otherwise helpless infants. Sorrow feels a lot like death, but there is a special type of godly sorrow that makes life possible for helpless sinners like Peter because it weans them off of their sin and it makes them cling to God's word as they never have before. See, the wrong kind of sadness will crush our spirits. It is crushing Judas's spirit even as this is happening. But spirit-generated sorrow brings repentance and restoration. Peter had never felt worse in his life than he did at this moment. This was absolute rock bottom, and he and Judas have that in common at this moment. The worst moment of their lives. But why does Judas fall into the abyss and Peter rise instead? Well, because Judas had worldly sorrow that led him to crushing despair. He never actually repented, tragically enough. Peter had godly sorrow that the Lord had given him and that led was his first step to repentance. And he only had it because Jesus prayed that he might have it. There's no sin of which we are not capable if we stay at a distance from Jesus, if we follow him, but at a distance. We carry around the potential for spiritual catastrophe if we do not watch and pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from all kinds of evil. But even when we fall, the Lord is so quick to forgive, so quick to restore us, and so quick to make of us something even more useful for having fallen and been restored. And Jesus, after the resurrection, takes the time over a charcoal fire to make eye contact with Peter yet again. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. 
Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three times he denied Jesus. Three times Jesus made sure that he very intentionally restored Peter gently and thoroughly. The fact that Peter did in God's providence became a powerful apostle who knew his own weakness enough to lean on the power of the Lord all the more readily, who became sympathetic to the needs and weaknesses of others in a way that he never would have been otherwise had he not fallen under his own strength, but then been restored in the strength of the Lord. Peter's fall took a man who was hard and tough and made him also compassionate and patient with others while still retaining that wonderful strength of character. A young man I spoke with recently shared with me how difficult it had been to battle against his besetting sin. But even so, he was glad that the Lord had allowed him to struggle against it because it had shown him in an unmistakable way how weak he was and therefore how desperately he needed the Lord's help in that area. And that had drawn him closer to the Lord than anything else in his life and given him compassion for fellow strugglers. We need to be tempted to remind us of where Adam has left us, as J.C. Ryle put it. But we also need to be strengthened and restored to be reminded where the Spirit of God has placed us. We need to remember both if we're to be really useful to the Lord. Truly, we are not as strong as we think we are, but again, that's not the point, is it? The point is that Christ is a mighty Savior and His grace is more than sufficient for each of us to restore us. As Ryle puts it, if He is so gracious in the high priest's courtyard during his time of trial and distress, think how gracious he will be at his Father's right hand when you pray to him now. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that in our weakness you have given us great help in our prayers. We thank you that when we lift our prayers up to you, we have the help of the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. We thank you that we have the help of the Son of God himself who lives even now to make intercession for us. Pray for us, Lord. Our prayers are so weak. Teach us to pray like you do and lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. We pray in Christ's name, amen.